Are you looking for more ways to learn about military and veteran culture? Are you a mental health professional or public health professional without lived experience in the military but find yourself working with veterans? Are you a caregiver or a family member of a veteran? Then you might be interested in a series of books that have been released with you in mind. By going to veteranmentalhealth.com forward slash books, you can check out three books that give you an insight into veteran mental health from a combat veteran perspective. These books are a collection of short, consumable essays that discuss a wide range of topics related to mental health and wellness in post-military life. Head on over to veteranmentalhealth.com forward slash books and check them out for yourself or follow the link in the show notes. Veteran suicide may be a national problem, but it has a local solution, and that local solution is you. Welcome to the Change Your POV Podcast. You're listening to Headspace and Timing, a show dedicated to breaking down the stereotypes of veteran mental health. I'm your host, Dwayne France. Let's get ready to make sure that your headspace and timing set correctly. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Headspace and Timing. If this is your first time listening, then thanks for checking us out. As many of you who serve know, the M2 machine gun, the 50 cal, is one of the greatest weapons in the military's arsenal. If the weapon's headspace and timing isn't set right, however, it's just a huge chunk of metal. Veterans can be rendered inoperable if their headspace and timing's not set correctly either. That's my mission here, to raise awareness about veteran mental health and reduce the stigma against seeking support. Each week we'll talk about different aspects of veteran mental health and interview mental health professionals that are working with veterans, service members, and their families around the country. Hey everybody, welcome back to Headspace and Timing, a show about changing the way that we think about veteran mental health. Uh, this is episode 17 and it's going to be Veterans Counseling Veterans with uh, Tony Williams. Uh, I think you guys will really enjoy this episode as uh, Tony, like me, is a uh, combat veteran and a clinical mental health counselor. So uh, I'm not the unicorn that people think I am. There are veterans who are in the mental health counseling field. So... Uh, Tony uh, is a, a retired Army combat veteran. Uh, he uh, served on active duty in the Army for over 24 years, eight enlisted and 16 commissioned. So that was a transition we'll, we'll definitely get into, uh, including, including service during Desert Storm, uh, Iraqi Freedom, and Enduring Freedom. Received numerous military awards, including a Bronze Star, three MSMs. Uh, he retired in t- 2007. And he still wanted to continue to serve his fellow veterans, so he rebranded himself, getting a master's degree in clinical mental health counseling from Troy University. Upon graduation, he founded and is the current president CEO for Veterans Counseling Veterans Incorporated. Uh, Tony is married to uh, Mrs. Thelma Williams, a retired police detective from uh, Plainfield, New Jersey. Uh, and uh, Tony has received numerous mental health counseling awards, including a two, 2014 National Award social service from the American Mental Health Counseling Association and won the Florida Mental Health Counselor Association 2015 poster awards. You've got a lot of stuff on your website. I'm going to make sure that, that we link to that in the show notes, but uh, Tony, welcome. Hey, welcome. How are you doing, Dwayne? Good to find be, uh, be on your show. Yeah, no, I appreciate that. It just just in your bio, stuff that I didn't know, and, and obviously uh, you and I have talked uh, in the past, but uh, 
uh, my beautiful bride uh, um, left a career in law enforcement to uh, to be an army spouse. She was a, a Knox County Sheriff's deputy. So uh, it seems like we have more in common than we thought. Sure does. So uh, so that's a lot of stuff uh, there, Tony. I, I'd, I'd first like to to get into maybe your military career, kind of when you when you joined. If you just got like big hand little map on uh, on what you did in the military. Yeah, first of all, I want to just uh, edit a little bit in the fact that I'm, I'm also a military brat. My dad was in the military for 20 years. So basically, if you add all the numbers up, I was, uh, of my 55 years, 45 years I've been in a military environment. Um, I, I kind of took the harder route than the normal route. I actually dropped out of high school at the age of uh, 17 after my dad decided he wanted to, uh, when he dad decided to retire, he wanted to um, retire to a place called Wilmington, Delaware. And that, that, that was the, really the first transition, if you will, that I, a point in my life. But because I didn't, because I was, so, I was so used to being in the military all my life, I just couldn't see myself in that environment that my dad was wanting me to be in. So I actually joined the military because of that. I did not want to, to be in that, you know, going to high school. It was totally different. Uh, everything was so different when I went there. And, um, so I went with my sister, she went to the, she's older than me, she went to the recruiter, and I said, let me tag along with her on, on a Monday. And by Friday, I was on my way to Fort Linwood, Missouri, Missouri uh, Echo 333. Uh, and so that's kind of how my, my introduction to the military went. Yeah, they got to, you. When, when was that? 1979, August 29, 1979, I joined the military as a high school dropout. And at that time, you could do that because your mother, your mother could sign a waiver. Right, she did that. So that was my first introduction to the military, and uh, my first my first big change. And one of the things, and you and I know about this, Dwayne, a lot is that um, one of the things that that they do in the military, they push you to always to be to be to improve yourself always. And that's what happened to me. My sergeant, Sergeant Stillwell, my Sergeant Stillwell, so remember him. He said, Tony, you gotta get your GED. <laughs> And I did. Uh, I got my I got my GED, and then after that, you know, for enlisted person, as you know, to gain the uh, motion points, it's one of the ways you do it is by education. Right. And so I just got, I was doing a lot of education, not because I thought I was going to pursue a degree, but really just to get just my my point was just to try to be competitive for promotion. And doing that, I got a year of college. I got my GED. I got a year of college, and then I happened to notice. That there was a um, well, and this is a whole, uh, just an interesting story as well. I was going to um, NBC school over in Fort Dix, New Jersey, and I was an E five at the time. And there was this, I had a big fight with the second lieutenant, and he just pretty much told me shut up. <laughs> and I says, what makes you more? What makes you give the authority over me? And he says, because I got a degree, and that's really what started it. <laughs> so I went was in was Army Times. I looked at Army Times. This is all God stuff, you know. This, this these sequences. I looked at Army Times, and I saw a thing, an article saying, active duty scholarship, two years and three years scholarship, apply now. And that's what I did. I applied for a three-year scholarship. I got, and I, I won it. Then um, it's one of those one thing we I just made these six at the same time. I made I made I made these six. I came on the six six list. And so I decided then I would, you know, let me finish it up. So that's what I did. I went and, I went to Temple University on a three-year ROTC scholarship. I got assessed as a military intelligence officer, and I finished up 16 years of my career for that. So that's kind of how the 
you made that shift, and that's uh, that's actually pretty pretty interesting. I, I had the opportunity when I was, I was in Bosnia in the '96. Um, I had actually put in for a green to gold, uh, the same thing, the scholarship, and and I was actually uh, accepted to Tuskegee University for a four year ride because I didn't oh, have wow. any college at that time, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, and and my NCO was basically because for me it was get out and go to school, become an officer and come back in or stay in and make my E5. Cause I'd made points. I just didn't have time. All I had to do was reenlist and you know, it was there. So for me, when you talk about those, those decision points of those transition points, uh, in, in my, uh, uh, Terrence Houston, I'll still remember, like you remember your NCO, uh, the basically asked me, what did I want to go to school for? You know, cause we think about that's what is the reason, right? What's the, a lot of people think that it's the the goal, but it's just a means to the goal. It's just means to an end. And I said that I wanted to be a teacher, you know, like a high school teacher or something. And that's what he told me an NCO is, right? A, a non-commissioned officer is a teacher, and that's what he does. And so ultimately at that point, um, I decided to stay on that side uh, as opposed to, to you making the transition uh, the way you did to the officer corps. Now, how was that for you? Uh, you had gotten out, I assume, or, or so you were out for a couple years and then came back in as an officer. Well, yeah, and it, basically, what it, uh, the way they try to do it, they put me in inactive reserve. So right. I, I wasn't I wasn't out out right, but I was out. <laughs> okay, because they could still pull me in if if I if, if I failed or whatever like that, they can still pull me back in. So I was out, if, but I was go- but I was out because I was going to school. That was the only reason why I was out. Wasn't out to be out. Right and. So it was a huge transition for me for a lot of reasons. Um, um, I had, as I, and I wrote an article about that, but I had, you know, I, I call it the board with the collective board. Well, for all those years, I, I always thought collectively. And now all of a sudden going to school and stuff, I had to think as an individual. And that was a difficult transition. And then the culture is different. I, you know, I went to school, I was older, I was like 27. So that's the first thing. I was older than most people going to school. And, um, the people who were in ROTC, they, except for one guy, they all were like they, like never been in the military. So right. I, so I had more in common with the with the instructors than I did with the actual classmates. And so, so and that this was a difficult was, transition. This was in the eighty, like late eighties or, or mid yeah. to late eighties, right? So this yeah. wasn't eighty six, eighty nine. So you know, maybe you might have had some, uh, you know, some Vietnam veterans, but uh, you know, this was you you served in sort of the height of the Cold War. Army um, and and not a lot of combat veterans and and that's what I call that that blank space in between Vietnam and and then the Gulf War and another blank between Gulf and and 9-11 but even that that was I mean the it wasn't a military it wasn't a country at war at that time so even the the fellow cadets didn't see it as as what say post 9-11 people would see it now oh absolutely and and we'll talk about that later on too but that that's one of the things too is that I came in through the Cold War, so the, obviously the, everything was totally different. Mentality, everything was different. And you were, and you were a reservist, really. You, you were a reserve, and, and the duty was really like an extra pet. You know, it wasn't really like you were really in the military. You know, you just kind of right. met for the weekend, had some barbecues, and, you know, got to collect the check that covered your card note or something. So everything was different when I was going through at that time. So then, uh, so then you came back active duty as a, a military intelligence officer. Um, so that was uh, late '80s. So you had served in the Gulf War, uh, and then those post-Gulf years, uh, and then ended up uh, in the early years of of uh, 9/11, uh, 
Um, I wonder what that was like being a veteran of the Gulf War versus maybe your experiences in um, in the, the global war on terror. You know, the interesting part is that um, at, when this happened, and I have done, you know, I have done the Hohenfeld thing. So obviously, I, I was an OC matter of fact at the, the Hohenfelds. So that helped prepare me as far as the the war kind of mentality because I was an OC because you were in Because Hohenfels is a combat zone. But. It's a combat training yeah. environment. So we were always, and I was, at, and I and I was there for like almost a year, almost a year and a half, just doing that OC stuff for scout for the uh, for the scouts and the in uh, the uh, GSRs. GSRs was my platoon. So because of that, I've been I have already been trained in, in the military aspect, um, and then it came to be you know I, I guess almost a, a way to help me out because what happened when the nine um, eleven happened I was actually doing one of my my R's. So when you're an officer and you're a captain, you once you finish command you have, you have to do one of the three R's, either reserve, ROTC, or recruiting. Mm. And I told reserve, which meant. I was going to go and train the reservists in National Guard and military intelligence. So yeah, you, were all, you were an active component attached to the um, yes. the the reserves. I had a, when I was exactly. at Fort Meade, I had a, a neighbor who had gone from the Ranger Regiment, and he was an advisor, enlisted advisor for a reserve unit, and spun his head around. Yes, yes, so, yeah, exactly. I was first. So first, Army Division, which was at, at the time it was in um, Atlanta. That was my actual duty station, but I was assigned at Fort Dix, and like I said. You're the active duty component. You're the jo- your your job is to try to help help uh, train the uh, reservists, National Guard, on uh, on their um, active duty operations. So that was another that was another you know another kind of transition. And that is that um, you have the reserve, and they're trying to teach. It's funny as you're trying to teach them, they're trying to teach you. Like that's don't be so critical and la la la. You know. Yeah, so, right. That, <laughs> why are you so hard? You know. <laughs> so yeah, that was that. That's what I was happening. That's what I was doing during the time of uh, the nine eleven at that time. Training Reserve National Guard. Uh, so then, uh, your your deployments to Iraq and Afghanistan. You had one each. Yeah. Well, actually, I didn't deploy to um, um, Afghanistan. So I, I need. I hated that when I was writing the bio. It's kind of thing. I was there, but I wasn't there. Ah. So so the OIF is when I actually deploy, and the, and and then the uh, Afghanistan. I was actually in a support role at, back in the states in Conus. Got you. Okay. And the uh, one in Iraq, it, that was different because I was acting in a special operation, which I really can't talk too much more about. But, sure. Uh, I was a, I was an O four, and they saw my like, my experience, and so I was actually uh, selected by um, Fort Belvoir. I don't know how much familiar with Fort Belvoir. Yeah, no, absolutely. I spent uh, three years in the military district of Washington, so um, yeah. definitely, if if you're tagged by anybody inside or, or close to the Beltway, uh, it's definitely a, a different kind of. Uh, uh, kind of um, mission, kind of situation. Yes. So, yes. so you left the military. I mean, and you know, so that was a, a really long time. Did you consider, like, did you intend on becoming a mental health counselor uh, upon leaving the when you retired? Uh, no way. So that's another. You know, all these transition points. Right. And and and, and sometimes it's just serendipity. So when I retired, and I met my wife just before I retired. Uh, and she was a, she was still an active police officer in Plainfield, New Jersey, and she was in charge of domestic violent unit in, in Plainfield. And I wanted to be have something her, her and I have something in common. So th- their unit had a civilian team that was called response team, domestic violence response team, that you can go and you, and you're per, you're like the first person they meet 
and, and basically your job is to, is to is to show them the resources and that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Well, that's what got me went because then at the time they told you they always told me you're not a counselor, you're just a, you're just like a point man. You don't counsel people. Right. And at that at that time, and I don't know how you were when you got out, but my mind was always focused on everything I thought was about military. And I said, well, you know what? I, I now see how I can use my my nine eleven GI Bill by getting a, a degree in counseling. And then I'll cre- then, you know, and then I didn't think about the at the nonprofit at the time, but that's that's what. Uh, the point that I decided I wanted to go into mental health counseling, not because I want to be, I want to do mental health, but I wanted to find a way that I could still continue to help the soldiers, and I thought that would be a good way of helping the soldiers still. Yeah, and and I think that's the big thing, and and um, especially you being enlisted before and and then moving the uh, to be an officer. It's one thing that I've always said is, when I was in the army, the NCO creed, you know, they accomplished my mission and the welfare of my soldiers. And, uh, and here you and I are carrying out the mission is now the welfare of the veterans that we serve. Um, and so yeah. it's really combining those, those two leadership uh, pieces. Um, but it's interesting to me that, that that wasn't a consideration for you. What did you intend on doing um, when you got out? What, what did you think your career, quote unquote, was going to be? Well, <laughs> so when I got out, I was military intelligence, I had top secret clearance. You know, I had all these things everybody said everybody wants. But I, I, didn't, I didn't enjoy doing that in the military. And I thought, when I got out, this is the opportunity, especially being an 04, that I can actually do what I want to do. And I thought at that time, like you, I thought I want to be a teacher. And then I got, like I, and then I, uh, I, you know, to do uh, teaching, you know, you had to certificate whatever, so I was a substitute teacher. And I had a terrible time teaching these little bad kids. <laughs> uh, and I, and I, yeah, it was interesting. I mean, they really got me. I went there, I was like, I think like the fourth or fifth graders. And they really um, pulled the wool over my eyes, you know, about what was going on. So I got, you know, I said, okay, no problems. So when I found out the truth, I had the whole class in a front leaning arrest position. <laughs> that was the, yeah. And they went and told the old principal, and the principal came to me and said, oh, my gosh, sir, you, you can't do that. <laughs> so, well, obviously, I, said, I can because I just did. Now, if I shouldn't, yeah, then, so, yeah. Yep, yep. So that's, that's so I, so because then I went, then that's how I was still substitute teaching. A little bit, and then I and then when I did my wife thing, and then I said, okay, uh, counseling, because I I wanted to find a way to do my my, my GI Bill, and I could I got a bachelor's in, in uh, business, I could have got an MBA, but I really wasn't that wasn't in, that didn't affect me spiritually when I when I you know I thought about it, it was like it was like when I saw that when I read the, the brochure about the counseling part is what I said, this is what I want to do right here. I didn't know about the other stuff, stuff I'm doing now. I just knew that this is something I know because my dad was in the military. My dad was, a dr- was an alcoholic. He was a drill sergeant, matter of fact. My dad was a drill sergeant, and everybody in his drill team were alcoholics. They were in great shape, but they had terrible marriages, and they were alcoholics. Yeah. And I never drank. That, my, the way I, I dealt with it, I did the other, pen, the other side of the pendulum. I never drank. Until the day I'm 55, I, I never drank. So I saw that it made a lot more sense. Then I did the mental health side and still helped the, 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 the um, veteran and their family. That's another thing I wanted to be able to do was to be able to still and help the family as well, not just the veteran, but the family too. So that's what got me kind of drifting toward the uh, mental health side of the house. You know, and, and that's, a, that's a big thing. And you, you pointed out, you mentioned serendipity, and, and that's something obviously that, uh, that, that I've learned, um, you know, just being the right place at the right time and, and veterans keeping their minds open for these other alternatives. 
Uh, some of my fellow guests or fellow hosts on the network uh, talk a lot about that is if you think that you need to get out and be a um, you know, a contractor, if you think that's what you need to do, then that's what you're going to do because you've got that locked in your head. I really like the example that you have of, well, I'm just going to be open to whatever and the whatever is uh, whatever comes along. And it sounds like you went through like three different uh, potential careers before you landed on doing what you've been doing for, you know, really the last uh, 10 years. Yeah, yeah, it's, uh, you know, it's one of the things about the military uh, um, is about adaptability. Being able to adapt is key. And I tell people who, and I, they don't listen to me too much, but I tell them, before you decide what you want to do, you need to take a year off. Because you, you first of all, got to learn how to be you. And you don't know what you like and don't like. So you're really about a year before you start making decisions about what you're going to do next. But, you know, the financial parts and all that kind of stuff makes it difficult for you to make those kind of, those kind of uh, um, pauses. But I really would think that as a, as, as a middle, especially if you're in a, a career like you and I, you need about a year just to try to get a chance to know who you are again. No, I, I think and your that's, family. No, I think that's accurate. And, and just in my experience, um, I started out uh, as a, a program director in a nonprofit. I did that for about 18 months. And you're right, it was about a year into it um, where it, for me it was much more like social work sort of that case management, um, you know, it sounded like maybe a little bit what you were a resource kind of uh, thing that you were doing with your, your wife's um, unit uh, that, that, you know, really wasn't, it wasn't satisfying to me. And that's what you're talking about. It's, it didn't sit right with you spiritually. It didn't sit right with me. Uh, and I was there for 18 months before I decided, you know what, this really isn't what I want to do. This isn't something that's fulfilling to me. And so, uh, that's some great advice too. Is if it's possible to to really take that time. The other thing, though, I, I hear you say, Tony, is don't get so locked into what you do when you first come out because that may not be what you're going to stay doing. Yes, yeah, it's it's very difficult because then you know you have the whole joke. We always said that, what am I going to do now that I'm grown up? Yeah, that's okay. kind of how, how kind of how it is when you when you get out of the military, especially if you've done it, been as long as we have. You're almost like starting over again. And just like when you're a kid and when you become an adult, you have to peel the onion. All those things that you are really not who you are, but who your parents want you to be in the environment. And you have to now take the time to find out who you are. And that takes time. And, and it doesn't happen naturally. You know, it takes effort. So, right. um, go ahead. No, I, and you're right. I think that's a, that's a good point, too. It's because if if uh, if you just kind of wait for it to happen, it's probably not going to happen. You know, if, if no. uh, you stand on the street corner and just wait for something to get handed to you. I mean, and I think a lot of veterans uh, think they know this or understand, but um, right. it, 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 it it's really beneficial to hear it coming from from you. And of course, uh, I, I feel the same way. So you get out, and then you become a, a mental health counselor. Um, so you've been doing this for about 10 years. Um, how was it when you no, first... No, no, actually, it's, I'm going on my third year. Oh, okay. So you yeah. started in yeah. 2007. Um, no, I, 2007, and I know we were fast-forwarding. It's that kind of the waiting round. That's, I did that part. Ah, I could gotcha. afford to do that. Others couldn't because my, my, my wife is already a professional, and I'm retired with a, with a major's pay. So I had the opportunity to actually sit around and kind of really get to sit, you know what I mean? Other people don't have that. They, get, they, they got house bills and kids going to college. So as soon as they retire from the military, they go right to the contracting job. Right. They have, there's no pause space. I had the opportunity to pause. So I didn't, start, I didn't get pursue my degree until like, um, I think 2000, 
nine or ten. Two thousand ten, maybe. Nine. Okay. Take a look. And, and so you're um uh and and you're in uh, Tampa, I believe, right? Yeah, so yeah, Tampa. And and so um what's the climate like for veteran mental health there in Florida? So Again, like I've always been focused on the, on the veterans and stuff. So I actually uh, um, interned at James A. Haley VA here in Tampa. Okay. And so I, I got that kind of experience also to help to help shape my my my, my comments. And what I saw, Dwayne, is that I was in a suicide prevention suicide prevention team, and at that time it was one of the best suicide prevention teams in in the VA. Um, and I was part of that team, and what I saw, Dwayne, was a lot of people who worked there were just there for the paycheck, and there were the very few veterans in mental health counselors, and that's still true today. I think it's like it's, it's 10%, but the psychologists and the mental health counselors, licensed mental health counselors, are in the are in the double digits. Like I think I think psychologists stand, and we're like number eight, and the rest is in two and three percent. So. What I, my experience helped, helped me think, you know what, we need to be doing it. We as veterans need to be doing it because the empathy is not the empathy. And I hate to sit there and paint a big brush because there are definitely people in the VA who care about veterans. And I definitely give a shout out to um, Carol uh, and, and uh, my, um, the chief mental health name is Dr. Glenn Conlano. Those guys really care. But right. the, the, the bulk of them, when they had a hard case to do, with a veteran cursing and yelling and stuff, they gave him to me. And I was a graduate. <laughs> so you, you can't hurt and you could possibly help, so here you go. And I, and I, did, you know, I, I think it's that relationship. I, I mean, I worked in, where I worked at was um, you know, all the guys who, who were Baker, Baker Act, they went on this war. And, they would, and we would go out there and assess them. And they would not talk to no, anybody. You know, and then I, I would go there and they would, get, they would talk to me about everything. So they saw that I was effective. And, and not because, I don't think it's because of as much as Tony is as much as the fact that I had something relatable, you know, and, and, and those guys got, they got, and I hate to sound like I'm painting the brush, but they had PhDs and that kind of stuff. So when they hear a curse word, they're already stopping, you know, they're, they're already uninvited. And to me, it's like, huh, and I keep, you know, I'll keep it going. They don't like that. They, because they're a PhD psychologist and they got these, these their mind is angry veterans cursing at them. And of course the veterans like, you don't know, you know, that kind of stuff. Right. I was on the phone one time with a guy, and he was, uh, and my supervisor had him. He was yelling and cursing, and they told me, "Here, Tony, talk to him." I'm like, "Okay." I talked to them, man. I tell you, about another hour or two, we were like best buds, <laughs> cursing and all. Yeah, but then, you know, I, I just that filtered that. That was filtered out. That don't right. mean nothing, doesn't mean anything to me. That's not how I, I value people and judge them, you know. So I think that's when I said to say, you know, we have to be. Why can't we do this? We as veterans who are counselors, why can't we do this? And that's where the thought of, the, of creating a nonprofit came in right there. Well, and, and, and I'm with you, and, and I know that uh, some of the recent discussions that we had um, on, uh, on, on LinkedIn and on Facebook where we're connected and, and how we, we got connected before is, uh, you know, I'm not anti-VA, and you said you're not anti-VA, um, but nope. uh, but but. But those of us who are on the outside have the ability to speak truth to power um, and yes, to be able absolutely. to, um, you know, if the emperor ain't got no clothes, then the emperor ain't got no clothes. Uh, right. <laughs> I have, uh, so I'm, I, I'm, we just presented at our, um, our monthly uh, summit 
uh, mental health summit, um, or excuse me, annual mental health summit this past week. Uh, when this, uh, when we're recording this, um, and and I have some very very respected colleagues that are very very skilled, as you said. Um, however, there's there's also limits and restrictions, and and there's things that. Uh, that the VA can't do, um, that I think that community providers can do, that you and I can do. Uh, some of that being more flexible and, and being more open and, and being able to respond quicker to, to maybe some veterans' needs. Uh, so I'm, I'm firmly with you on that, that there needs to be both a community support element uh, as well as a place for the VA. Now, yeah. you, you mentioned, though, that, that more of us should do that, you know, that, that we can do that. Um, I just don't know that there's that many of us veterans who are also mental health counselors uh, to be able to make that shift. Yeah, I think, and I think yeah, that's why I see very few of us, but, you know, Dwayne, uh, first of all, demographically, the majority of the counselors are women. True. And and demographically, majority of counselors are, are not military. I mean, they're the ones that was out, that was probably throwing and spitting at the Vietnam veterans because they really have this different mentality of veteran, you know, of us, you know. And uh, um, most of the time, what you find out is that people who are who are counselors are not the the, the soldiers or servicemen, but it's their spouse that are that are actually doing that field, like True. the teachers and stuff. Mm-hmm. But then it's also that part where, especially like we're more cop. The, the military rewards cognitive thinkers, right? If I can't be an officer, I cannot be a, 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 a whatever, a lieutenant, captain, charge, whatever, and have feelings. Now, I got to sit there and take that hill, and if 80 of you guys die, what well, if 80 of you guys die, that's the price you pay. You know, that's a cognitive uh, thought process, not a touchy feel like, I don't want you, you know? And I think that what the skill set that we learn and, the, and all that kind of stuff is not really does not really set itself up for being a counselor because the counselor involves you being more empathetic and more and thinking more of the individual and not of the collective. You know, I, I think that's a, that's a really great uh, point. You know, I, I think of these, uh, remember these kids toys, you know, you squeeze the ball and, and it, it, uh, the, you know, it goes up to the top end or the bottom end. The, the military does squeeze in, in, in many senses, almost literally, squeeze the emotion out of you and kind of push yes. everything up into your head and cognitively. I like how you, you said that um, yes. very much. That in, and that was going back to what I said before about the accomplishment of the mission and the welfare of the soldier. Uh, there were many times where I was told very clearly that if I had to choose between the two, it was the mission. Um, yes. And, you know, Absolutely. and some people had a struggle with that. But but yes, it's yes. it's a it is very much more on the the logic side. Um, not that there aren't emotional people, because a lot of times that would come out in different ways—the screamers and the yellers and the, the uh, you know, the 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 anger. Really, I mean, the anger was primarily the the one emotion that was acceptable, almost. Um, almost. And, unless uh, for those brief moments where you had a memorial ceremony, uh, which you could uh, allow a silent tear to roll. Um, beyond that. You know, that was that was pretty much it. So I really like how you identified that, that that's what the army did or the military did was was push all of the effort into cognitive and logic rather than emotion and heart. Yeah. And, and, I, and I want to take it one little step further in that there's a role for the enlisted and, and a role for the officer. Now, I'm, I consider myself bilingual because right? I speak both enlisted and commissioned. Right. 
And it, and so it's more of the NCO's job to take care of the soldiers than it's me as commission officer. You know, and I, I got into a lot, and because I, and, and that made, that was a struggle for me because when I was in those meetings with all the officers and stuff, I still was the NCO. <laughs> and <laughs> I got into battles there, you know. Uh, we a, got, you know a sheep in wolf's huh? clothing. Oh my gosh, I got into fights. And, people that, and the people on the outside didn't know that. They just start all of a sudden, they see we're doing something that doesn't make sense, and what, Tony, why didn't you fight for it? Man, I almost got fired trying to fight for you guys to try to do it to, that you can take care of both. Um, and so that's another thing. That it's, as we, as counselors, we have to sit there and understand the nuances of a soldier or a sailor or whatever, from the enlisted part to when the junior enlisted to when the, all those things have different, like a biopsychosocial that we are intuitively know about when somebody comes and talks to us. Right. So an, an E4, who may be single, may have a whole different social, uh, biopsychosocial stressors than an E8, who's in first sergeant or whatever. You know, and I and that and I gotta appreciate that saying, hey, you know, uh, and that, and I think as a, as a counselor, people like you and I will sit there and see somebody, and they tell me that they're a, a first sergeant, whatever. I say, oh, okay, I know what that, I know where I'm coming from, and not and not sit there and say, a first sergeant, are you higher than a general? And, you know, that just turns a lot of people off when you talk like that. Yeah, I mean, and and I do. I, I that's it goes beyond cultural competence, um, and it and it actually goes into um, you know. Uh, really understanding you and i natively understand the military um whereas uh you know and, and you spent time in germany i spent time in germany um and uh in and, and, and we could have learned german we could have learned the german culture we could learn german history uh we could we could maybe speak it as as well or understand it almost as well but we would still have that one gap left where we couldn't make it into a native speaker, right? We we still wouldn't be a true native individual. Now I right. think that that many people Good can point. put the effort to to get there, um, but but for me, what I say is uh, when we talk about military cultural competence, let's get past the describing what HUA means, right? Let's get past <laughs> you know let's let's get to the real stuff like you're talking about the real difference between you know a single E four in the barracks and a married uh, you know command master chief. Um, you know, who, who doesn't know his kids, right? Those are, those are two totally yeah. different aspects yeah. where somebody would say military, military. Exactly. Yep. And, and, and that's, I think, the, the effort that you're trying to do is really to gather around a lot of the, um, uh, the mental health providers who are veterans, um, and, and we're part of a group that you've created um, to, to really try to, to get that together. And, and again, that's the, the main point of this podcast is not just to talk to veterans about, hey, you know, you can actually reach out to mental health, but also a source for providers to say, look, there's more yeah. than just, you yeah. know, the difference between a corporal and a specialist. Um, yeah. You know, and, and, you know, there's, you know, calling a, calling a Marine a Marine is sort of like uh, skill level one tasks where, we really need to make sure that counselors are up to their, you know, higher level tasks. Yes. Yeah. One thing I, I want to also do is that, you know, uh, and I always say this, that the Army, the military don't put the same kind of effort when they make us into the military than we get out. And, and, and for example, in the military, they do, what they do is they, it's like when you, when you, when you whack the floor and they strip you of your whole identity. Mm-hmm. And then they, coach you with the collective identity. And, and that 
talks about AIT and you know whatever your primary MOS is, and we don't do the same thing when we get out. We don't sit there and then all of a sudden put in a uh, take, strip away the individual and then I mean uh, the collective part and put the individual, and there's no AIT on the other side. So what I want to try to do with mental health counselors who are veterans is create an AIT uh, on the other side. That okay, you you decide. For, and, I, and what I do with not with my nonprofit veterans counseling veterans, if you're somebody who just comes out and you're going to get a degree in counseling, it's like counseling college or whatever, I will assign you with, and you get with us. We'll assign you a mentor, and then we will help you navigate because you know as you know like you're a network, and a lot of these guys aren't networked, but we'll help you with that. I think we need to do the same thing if the, if we're really serious about helping these guys transition, women and guys transition. Is taking the same kind of energy you use to make them into soldiers or sailors or, sa or airmen and making them, you know, uh, on the other side, AIT and helping them out with the careers. And, you know, it's not everybody wants to be a, a construction worker. And that's what right. I see most of them when I look at these job fairs, I see a lot of construction jobs. I'm like, wait a minute. What if I want to be a skill? What if I want to do like we're doing? Where's that at? You know, and, and, and you make an excellent point. Obviously, depending on how long you're in basic training um, or um, OBC, if you're an officer, look at West Point or any of the service academies, yeah. uh, spending as much time as, as they do to create future officers, um, that uh, that they don't do that on the outside. And, you nope. know, I say it's, it's hard to change the machine once you're in the machine. Uh, but once I started learning psychology and mental health, uh, I looked back and realized that I was a participant in the greatest Pavlovian experiment ever <laughs> called Airborne School. Right. Air, airborne School, it's, it's, it's two weeks of throwing yourself against the ground, so all you do when that green light comes on is what the Army wants you to do, which is jump out the airplane. Just get to out the airplane. Yeah, totally against all of our, you know, there's, there's, <laughs> there's two ingrained fears when we're born, fear of loud noises and fear of falling. And so totally against someone's nature to jump out of an airplane, but that's what the Army did for me back in the, the late 90s was, was, was get me to think it was my idea. I'm the one that raised my hand for it, you know? And, and so yeah. that's a lot of it is to suppress the fear and to suppress the, the concerns and just so it becomes automatic. And so yeah. the Army invests so much time so that we run towards the sound of the battle or, or we volunteer for... Not just dangerous assignments, but uh, you know, um, just moving our families around and 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 just you know, life disruption. But we love it because that's that's the culture that we're thinking. But then yes, the army does not give us the same amount of time um, or the same amount of effort in retraining ourselves to to prepare for the civilian world. Right. Yep. The, the idea, though, of and, and, and I've, I, you know that I bang this gong, is that when, when we're talking about transition, that nobody seems to want to talk about veteran mental health in context of that transition. Um, this is a lot of the reason why my, my, uh, my co-host, Eddie and Bennett, brought me on the show, is that they know that they're talking about, um, they're talking about networking, they're talking about entrepreneurship, they're talking about um, you know, how to, you know, write your resume and things like that. But they recognize that there is a huge aspect of veteran mental health that is not addressed in many transition. And that's how to set our mental health, how to get that shift. Yes. Yeah. Yep. How do we get and, that? And, and, well, I mean, that, I mean, I think the problem is, okay, like we just said, the majority of people who are decision makers, like, okay, when I, when I went for, when we go for promotion, 
the people who are on this motion board are mostly combat arm guys and who have combat patches. And those are the same people who are, who are making decisions about transition. And that, what did I just say? Majority of us learn the cognitive. So that's not even part of their, that's not even part of their little lexicon. <laughs> that's one of the problems. The people who are making these decisions are not, they don't think like that. And so that's DOD. And, that's no, and no one holds DOD accountable. They hold the VA accountable, but no one holds DOD accountable. They, have, they got the biggest silos, and they're still there. That was still there in DLB. No, I, I, I agree. And this was, uh, this was one thing, again, um, as we're recording this, we had um, our, our VA mental health summit, in, and we, um, uh, the panel addressed uh, the opioid crisis. Uh, and part of my um, emphasis to them was that if you want to talk opioid crisis, you need to get DOD in the room because that's where it starts. Exactly. All of it. You know what, Dwayne? 90% of the stuff that starts, started there, started in the DOD. And it's like, these, like these, uh, the, 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 the VA is trying to handle this military sexual trauma. Well, if it's not identified when they're on active duty, how the heck are you going to sit there and do, identify afterwards? Right. And so a lot, almost, and, and then the jumper, you, you and I are airborne jumpers. Well, a lot of us who were jumpers, the military told you don't complain. You want to be successful, stop complaining. Don't go to thick car. <laughs> Knees and back. And I, um, yeah. I, I had surgery on my hand. I had carpal tunnel, which was first identified when I was in jump master school in 99 uh, and, uh, and had surgery on it in uh, 2013, of course, because right before <laughs> we get out, they say that's when yeah. you're supposed to get uh, you know, 20 years of, um, of, uh, of care. Uh, and the doctor brought in, like, they brought in students to stare at my hand. And they were like, this is what happens when you ignore this injury for 20-something years. <laughs> yeah, and because, yeah. because that's what we do. And, it, and it's, it's a collective suck it up and drive on yes. Um, yes. until yes. it gets to the point where there are physical and emotional, spiritual, moral uh, injuries. Yes. So, yes. so how, do you, how are you addressing that with the veterans that you see? Talk to me a little bit about Veterans Counseling Veterans. So one of the things about the veterans, council veterans, and I, and I got the acronym TEAMS because, you know, we love, we love acronyms in the military. And we have the training, the education, advocacy, the mentorship, and then the service. And so if you're somebody who's a student or whatever intern, we help, help you to, to go through that transition as well as the academic, the academic part of the schooling. If you're a... Um, a client, or, or, you know, and a lot of the clients come through referrals, you know, and what we'll do is we'll, um, we'll try to match you up with somebody who can who best match up with you. So in other words, if, if you're um, a spouse um, or, or a dependent, then we'll look around in our area, like a resource, like you were talking about the, the, the um, social work part, and, I'll, and, and who's military, and, I'll, and we'll say, hey, here's somebody here, you know, you can see them. If you're combat, then we'll try to match up with a combat person. And then, you know, some, we're not that big yet to be able to sit there and, be, and do too many things. Like, you know, we've got the Air Force, Marines, all that kind of stuff. So we try to sit there and, and do a, 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 a um, intake and try to uh, match up with the best as possible somebody who's like you or close to being like who you are. And we all, and one of the problems I have with the Veteran Treatment Court is that um, when you make a decision, most of us who get out of the military, it also includes your family. And that's the same thing with Veterans Treatment Court, whatever. 
And while this guy, while, while this guy, while the veteran's getting treatment, no one's treating the family. And if the child's not, if the family's not being treated, then you're really not really helping out the veteran. And that was not really accepted in the veteran treatment court. You know, I, I would say, well, refer the family to us so we can help them out on the other end, and so they can help you know. So that's what we try to do. Is we also try to do, we try to hit both ends. If if I got a guy come in, a woman come in, and she's a veteran, but she got a family who's also dealing with stuff, then we, we we hit both of them. We hit the family and we hit the, the veteran. You know, and I think that's something that is uh, it, that is very much overlooked, and I see the same thing too, which is um, how how we sort of independently or, or or similarly came up with the Colorado Veterans Health and Wellness Agency, uh, is that the um, the veteran who gets out, you know, maybe he's a staff sergeant, did uh, two in Afghanistan, one in Iraq, he had eight years, and he decided to hang it up, no no medical discharge or whatever. At least he has the VA. Now, his wife, who's been with him through all of those, uh, and the kids who have not been with him or, you know, have been, you know, um, maybe they've been through a couple of them, they have zero resources. Um, There's no more military one source for veterans. Um, There's no more uh, TMC. There's no more health care. Thankfully, you and I um, have, uh, you know, we've retired. We we made it to that point, you know, maybe scratching and clawing, but we, we got there. And so we have the resources of TRICARE and, and uh, you know, my kids are, are, you know, still teenagers and, you know, hey, get into the doctor tomorrow, right? We still have those resources. Um, but those those young, I had a staff sergeant who uh, deployed four times in his 10 years and he tapped it out and he said, I can't do it. It's already spent one marriage. I can't make it spend the other marriage. Yeah, um, and, and he was like, I, I just, I have to be done because he did 20 years of service in 10 years. Uh, and his family doesn't have the resources that maybe yours and mine do, um, and so that's a that is a vastly overlooked aspect of of mental health. I call it still veteran mental health uh, because the spouses serve too. Yes, they do. Yeah, and and I tell you, and uh, Dwayne, and I have a personal actor because remember I was a military brat, right? And I used to always I used to always say it's like I look at us being like a, a plug and play. That I'm like a computer. Before we uh, we put something into the computer, it always says, "Hold up, wait up, hold up." Okay, now it's safe. And then when we take it out, let's make okay. Now it's safe. Take it out. We don't do that with the kids. The kids is just jank them and put them into your plug and play, and that affects our growth and 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 the way it interacts and how we socialize. And so and no one looks at that saying, "Wait a minute, how's that affecting his children or her children?" You know, with the different aspects and how they're helping in the interaction. No one's doing that. Yeah, so there's. I, that's um, what I want to try to figure. They they call you know everybody talks about army brats, but it's really a, an ungrounded culture, right? They they don't have any place that they're from. Uh, yeah, you know, I've, I've I've told this before, but my son, who's uh, just turned sixteen, um, he and I were having a conversation, just driving down the road or whatever, and and you know, the thought popped into my head, and I said, you know, if someone were to ask you where are you from, what would you say? Now, my wife and I, of course, she'd say she's from Knoxville. I grew up in St. Louis. You know, I could say that I'm from somewhere. I can go point to my childhood home. Um, and, and he was like, well, you know, I was born in Germany, but I don't remember that because they, were, they left when they were like, you know, 18 months and two years old. Uh, then he was like, and we spent time in Maryland, but I don't remember that either. And, you know, I grew up mostly in Colorado, but I'm not from Colorado. So he's like, I really don't know. And I think that's very indicative of 
I mean, and, and that's just, you know, and that's my kids and my wife and I have been very, you know, uh, focused on making sure their development and giving them as much as they can. Um, but I think that's indicative of many military children. Yes. Yep. I, I just always ask me where you're from. I says everywhere and nowhere at the same time. Right. And you, you live that, right? My, and, yeah. and again, this is our similarities are uncanny, uncanny, Tony, but my, my father served in Vietnam. Uh, but he wasn't a career man. He was out of the army before uh, before I left. Although I saw the residuals of it for twenty five, yeah. thirty years. Um, but yeah, mm-hmm. you lived that ungrounded, um, unmoored kind of aspect in that the military became going back home for you. I'd imagine. Yes, yeah, it was like going. And I tell you, I, I'll put it a, a different spin on it. I'm African American. Right. It's a whole another. It's a whole another aspect of it that. I had I had absolutely no connection or relationship to the African American community. Yeah, and so that's something that when you got out of the, when you were a military brat or when you got out of the military, all of a sudden now <laughs> you're back to something you know have you have no idea how to deal with. You know, I'm a military guy. You know. Yeah, so, I mean, and that's, that's it's, so it's it's not just a a un, you know a lack of connection geographically, but almost but socially definitely yep. uh, and even racially yep. almost. Yep, yep, yep. Yeah, different, just different. So I'm more comfortable. So it's interesting, you know. I mean, again, so as a counselor, I'm saying those things uh, you would overlook unless you had that kind of you know experience. Somebody, oh wait a minute, wait a minute, this guy here, maybe you know he or she's a is dealing with this kind of stressor as well, right? So. And I think that's a that's a very much overlooked aspect for people that aren't familiar with military service. Is is how, and and I'm I'm not even going to say um, you know colorblind we are because you know Lord knows Tony I know that that's not the case, um, but we're much more culturally diverse. We're much more globally minded and and culturally diversified uh, minded. My first roommate in uh, for. We were first duty two duty stations, and he was a kid from Hilo, Hawaii, and and you know no no kid growing up in St. Louis would ever know anybody even <laughs> from Hilo, right. Hawaii. And the same yeah. thing, he was like you know, but but we were we were best of friends. Um, you know, airborne went to eighty second together, and and uh, you know jumped out of airplanes together, and and you know and those kind of things, and and that's not normal. That's that's not in in normal. Um, American existence, you know, people that never leave their county or never leave their state, yeah. um, to have have interacted with veterans that have been in in more um, in more countries than most people have been in towns. Yes, yes, and and, and I, I like you. I I grew up in the military as a kid and as an adult, so I t- literally say my best friend is this. You know, I'm not BSing. I mean, he's my best friend, or I've been in their house and in my house. It's, that's the kind of life we grew up in. And if you're in a military brat, or if you're also, or if you're in a military you know, um, generally speaking, you know, generally speaking, people just look, you know, look at your rank, whatever, and that's about it. And then you come out to this world, to the the real world, I guess, this side here. And so you got to deal with that as well, the transition of that. And you, you know, you look around. You know, that's why I joined the I joined the American Legion, and I, I'm more, you know, I'm comfortable with them. You know, more than anybody else than anything else. So, yeah. So, and and uh, I definitely want to be uh, respectful of your time and and start to wrap it up here, but. You know, I, I get a lot of veterans, uh, especially now that like like you are putting yourself out there and, and having these conversations um, that uh, the veterans say, you know what, you're not going to get me to see a shrink. Uh, why do I need to work with the mental health counselor? What would you say to that veteran? Well, and, and this is what, again, another challenge we have, uh, Dwayne, is that 
the, the veteran is always taught to take, look out for his buddy, right? No, we, we did jumping, and we, are, and, you, and we always check out the guy in front of us. Yep. We never really checked ourselves as much as the people behind us, checking mm-hmm. that guy looking at my back. Exactly. Well, what I, and so what I would do with them, and that's I think we have to be more creative in our counseling, is try to get it in a more of a teamwork kind of mentality and not as individual. And try to get somebody or someone they're, they're um, concerned with as part of the whole. Because, you know, the thing about media and nonprofit and all that kind of stuff, I can include a lot more people than if I was a VA or something. I, I tell them all that. When they come to me, I, who's, your, who's, your, who's your, um, one of your, your support mechanisms? Okay, I'm calling them. And I, and I don't tell them exactly what's going on as far as, you know, we still have our, our rules as far as confidentiality. But I make sure they're part of it. I let them know. If I can't find you... If you can't, if you don't contact me, I'll contact her, or I'll, talk, I'll contact him. And you know that you gotta, you, you gotta try to get him away from. You gotta try to the, the passive aggressive kind of stuff. And I try to, you know, one thing we have to do. I, I start with groups. So where I have here, we have groups, and you know, football, that kind of. Start with something fun, football, uh, hiking, whatever, and then you start it from there, and they'll start talking. And then, and then, then you'll pull it aside and, and start dealing with the individual side again because we're collective. So we got to do reverse. We got to start with the group to get to the individual, not the other way around. You know, and so that's I, so, uh, and and uh, it's what I love about this, Tony. Is is um, is I always learn something new from each of my guests, and I think that's my big takeaway from from you is is uh, we can't start from the individual and then go to the general. Um, that that we need to to have the veteran be where they're comfortable, which is in that yes. group around, yep. you know, other veterans. Or and and, and I have another um, uh, guest, uh, Timothy Weineke. He he's familiar with veterans in the um, in the education field, and he says that when he first comes in, because he did a lot of he's a professional counselor, also did a lot of work in higher education. Uh, and, and he said when veterans first come into college, they're going to start associating with the other veterans and grow the beard and, and wear the patches <laughs> and stuff like that, which is, which is perfectly fine. Uh, but then he said it's, it's strange because you can almost see how um, the minute they decide to make that shift, that they shave the beard off, they get the haircut, and they put on a collared shirt. And it's usually towards the end of their sophomore, beginning of junior year. And then they find another tribe to to connect That's with trouble. essentially they want to work with other dentists or they want to work with other um you know visual artists or something you know but they they connect themselves to another group but uh but but that's that's a, a really great idea is to find brothers and sisters connect with them and through them get to the individual yeah mm-hmm. that's great so, um, so to wrap it up here, Tony, where can people find you? Um, how can they get a hold of you? I know how to get a hold of you, but I want to make sure to, to let them know, and, and then we'll make sure we get it all in the show notes. Well, you where we have a, um, my website, um, vetscounselingvets.org, www. Uh, that's, that's my website. I also have a Facebook page, and the Facebook page, uh, which is called Veterans Counseling Veterans, and that's mainly uh, people who are involved in the mental health profession come together and we and uh, hopefully we share ideas and, and topics and stuff. Those are the two main ways that you can get a hold of me, either my, my website. Obviously, you're, uh, and I'm in Hillsboro, so I'm well-known in Hillsboro, um, word of mouth, but those are the best ways to get a hold of me. Well, and I think that's the big thing is, is uh, you and I were sort of like scouts outside the gate, um, that, uh, that pointing the way back or, or maybe you know a, a torch in the wilderness or whatever, but 
Um, that's what I want to try to do is to be able to find um, mental health professionals, not necessarily veterans, as long as they understand what's going on. Um, and if I know somebody in Tampa, if, if, if through my blog or through this podcast or something, somebody reaches out to me and they say they're in Florida and they're hurting, you know, I send them to you. Right. Or, or, you know, so to, to really build a nationwide network of culturally competent veteran mental health professionals. Uh, so definitely going to make sure that you're on the uh, resource list and, uh, and make sure that, uh, that everybody knows that you're out there. Thanks, Dwayne. Okay, any last thoughts, Tony? Uh, I, I just want to, one thing I want to plug in, we talked about it uh, on the internet, on the LinkedIn. I've created a uh, coalition. I think, and that's another thing, too. I've always learned about coalitions. I'm not about individual. And I've created a coalition called Veterans and Families Outreach Support for Suicide Survivors. So I, I, I want, hopefully that spreads everybody in the area, including yourself, create something similar where. We got it. The people, when a veteran complete dies by suicide, who's taking care of the family? They have to deal with that tragic event. And that's one of the things I want to push. And as a matter of fact, I have a meeting tonight uh, on that. And I'm also meeting the, another military program director for Living Works tomorrow to try to create a, a, a support mechanism for families. And most of these families are not even veterans. Most of them are just like, you know, non-veterans. And all of a sudden, after the, the, the person dies by suicide, they're thrust into the, into the military culture and they know nothing about it. So I want to create something that will help them out, which, which is what I have now. It's called VBOX. So that's why I want to also throw out to your listeners uh, to start something like that is because uh, veteran suicide may be a national problem, but it has a local solution, and that local solution is you. I hope that's your tagline, Tony, because that was a pretty good one. And I'm going to make sure. I mean, I mean, and that is it. That's that's uh, that gave me goosebumps right there. It may be a national problem, but it has a local solution. Um, it's and, and that's what I tell people. Um, I was speaking uh, just the other day about it. Is uh, I'm not going to solve 20 a day, 22 a day, whatever the number is, but just one, right? Just just yeah. one. It it has to be solved on an individual face to face eyeball to eyeball level um, yep. and uh, and I really like that so I'm gonna make sure that there's a link to that in the show notes and uh, and and we'll we'll hopefully make a difference well I appreciate you being on the show today Tony well, thanks for inviting me Dwayne I'll see you on the other side absolutely thanks for listening to this episode of Headspace and Timing I'd like to thank Eddie and Bennett of the Change Your POV podcast for their focus on the mental health and wellness of our nation's service members you can support the Change Your POV podcast by heading over to our Patreon page located at www.changerpov.com Patreon. I'd also like to thank my sponsor, the Family Care Center, Private Outpatient Clinical Mental Health Counseling Agency in Colorado Springs, Colorado, as well as the Colorado Veterans Health and Wellness Agency, 501c3 nonprofit professionally affiliated with the Family Care Center. We specialize in the mental health and wellness of veterans and their families in the Colorado Springs area. You can find more information at both at www.fccsprings.com. You can find the show notes for this episode on both changerpov.com and Headspace and Timing blog at veteranmentalhealth.com. We recommend that you subscribe to the podcast using your favorite app or podcast player. Sign up for the blog updates at changerpov.com and veteranmentalhealth.com. That way you won't miss future episodes or blog posts. Well, I'm a mental health professional, I'm not your mental health professional, and neither are the guests on the show. The information presented here does not represent professional mental health advice. If you're in need of help, 
Contact a crisis line, emergency room, treatment center, or consult with a qualified mental health care provider. We want you to be safe because you're important to us. Are you looking for more ways to learn about military and veteran culture? Are you a mental health professional or public health professional without lived experience in the military but find yourself working with veterans? Are you a caregiver or a family member of a veteran? Then you might be interested in a series of books that have been released with you in mind. By going to veteranmentalhealth.com forward slash books, you can check out three books that give you an insight into veteran mental health from a combat veteran perspective. These books are a collection of short, consumable essays that discuss a wide range of topics related to mental health and wellness in post-military life. Head on over to veteranmentalhealth.com forward slash books and check them out for yourself or follow the link in the show notes.